Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast often deals with graphic, violent, and horrific crimes against men, women, and children. Please listen at your own discretion. If you are affected by any of the themes featured in this episode please contact your local support charity. The way that the body had been found was suspicious. The arms had been removed, sawn off. Whether that's domination or or beating uh, women in some way or another. So it's not surprising then that men would seek to act it out at some point in time. Sometimes there will be very rough sex in it. When men look at pornography, they're really thinking more of the, the woman as an object, not as a person. Go out means um, it is a very good technical term. Go out means you're going to have sexual intercourse. Of course, you have to pay for that. A head and torso were found in the river. Catching Worms, a Hong Kong true crime podcast. In 1960, the iconic Hong Kong taxi numbered just over 1,000 cars on the road. But the city was expanding, and by 1980, that number had increased to over 10,000 cabs. Fueled by low tax rates and skyrocketing trade with China and international markets, Hong Kong was booming. In the 1980s, this new era of growth made Hong Kong a mecca, a place where you could make money fast. Unemployment was almost unheard of, and young Hong Kongers were moving away from manufacturing jobs to the service industries, serving the droves of new moneyed business and expats arriving in the city every day. Taxis were the lifeblood of this city that never slept. You could finish a meeting in Kowloon and then whiz across the harbour to a bar in Wan Chai for just a few dollars. Simon Ng was the first blue taxi driver in Hong Kong. It was a good job at the time. I asked him how much a fare would be. How much did it cost? Oh, two dollar. Two dollar. Yeah, two 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 dollar. The meter, yeah, two two dollar. Uh, and 
about 1,000 kilometers, 20 cents. And then how much every week would you make if you're a taxi driver in 1983? How much uh, money do you about, make? About $80 per day. $80 per day is around 8 British pounds or 10 US dollars. But those earnings increased at night time. It was a popular time to drive. Some, some young men lay in the, in, in, in the, in the light time. Sister in the light time, they lie. Oh, many, many, young, many young men. They, 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 in the daytime, they had well, uh, many, many work. <laughs> oh, they, they, so they, somebody lie at light time. Lam Korwan liked to drive at night. At night, the rain would beat down on the roof of his taxi, almost mesmerically. Lam later described this sound as the voice of God. Lam Korwan was born on the 22nd of June, 1955. Lam's parents weren't married when Lam was born. Lam's father worked in Brunei and visited them in Hong Kong whenever he was on leave. In 1957, when Lam was two, his father moved the family to Brunei to live with him and his pregnant mistress as one big happy family. Lam's mother was not happy with this arrangement or the way that Lam's father was treating her young son, striking him on many occasions. Lam grew up with the dutiful respect of his parents, but with his father on his third marriage and partaking in extramarital affairs, he perhaps did not have the best example of how women should be treated. Lam was not popular at school. He didn't have many friends and didn't connect with his teachers. After school, he tried out a few different jobs before settling on becoming a taxi driver. It suited him. He could be himself in his taxi, quiet, self-contained, watching the world go by and studying his passengers. He could fade into the background. He could go unnoticed. Homicide detective Martin Richman describes his first impressions of Lamb. Well, he's quite um, uh, th thin, but quite wiry, medium-height Chinese guy. Chan Feng Lang was a pretty girl. 21 years old, she worked as a manageress in a dance club, the famous Chinese Palace nightclub. I asked Joseph Sanchez, who was a police inspector at the time, what it was like there. Did you ever visit or heard of a place called the Chinese Palace nightclub? Oh, yes. It was in Chim Sa Chui. Actually, Yao Ma Tai Chim Sa Chui, between that, or Chodron, as you say, is because of the same area. It's quite, it's quite a big one. It's quite a good one, too. And what, so what was it like in there? Was there music? Was there, what was it like yeah. in there? It was just like a Chinese uh, nightclub. I mean, like an, a Western nightclub operated by the Chinese, as you know how it is going to be like. They've got all sorts of small tables, round tables, which can accommodate three to four people. And then um, the girl will sit next to you. If you don't want them, you can tell them away. And then uh, they will change it until such time. Uh, or you can have, order some food or drinks. Yeah, there will be music played good nightings and that sort of thing. And at the end of the like two or three hours, because your pocket is, uh, I mean, your wallet is going to be drained off. So you asked the girl to go out with you. Go out means um, it is a very good technical term. Go out means you're going to have sexual intercourse 
Of course, you will have to pay for that. I mean, pay money. That will be like <clears throat> at least at least five hundred dollars for once. I mean, they they count it like once or twice when the man is finished. That's once. That was for the locals. That's for the locals, but <laughs> for the Chinese Palace nightclub, you are you saying that that wasn't really for locals? That was more for for Guaylos. Uh, no, for the richer people in Hong Kong, businessmen in Hong Kong. The term Guaylo refers to foreigners and often Caucasians. It's Cantonese slang and has a complicated past, translating to white devil or ghost. However, now it is fondly coined by locals and expats alike, and no offence is meant by it. In the 1980s, Guaylo businessmen were here to make money and enjoy themselves, alongside their Hong Kong colleagues. So it was a club frequented by the wealthy businessmen of Hong Kong who could afford to buy Chan Fan Lang a few drinks. On Wednesday, February 3rd, 1982, she had finished her shift. It was 4am and after a successful night, she'd had one too many lady drinks. She stumbled out onto the streets of TST in search of a taxi. She meandered towards the taxi queue. The first driver refused to take her. She was too intoxicated. So, she approached the second taxi in the queue. He followed suit and refused to take her, as did the third. Finally, she approached the fourth taxi in the queue and was in luck. This was the taxi BY5785, and its driver was Lam Korwan. An extract from Hong Kong Noir by Feng Chi Xuan, published by Blacksmith Books. It was raining, and taxis were hard to come by when it rained. Lam was able to cherry-pick his customers, and he chose this young woman staggering out of a nightclub. When she reeled into Lam's taxi, she was slurring her destination before she passed out cold in the back seat. She sobered up briefly when the taxi drove through Mong Kok. She thought of an old colleague of hers who had recently opened a bar in nearby Boundary Street, Gai Han Gai, and she considered having a few more drinks there. She yelled at Lam to change course and destination. When the taxi reached Boundary Street, she realized she was too drunk to have any more alcohol. So she changed her mind again and ordered Lam to drive to Sham Shui Po, where she lived, before she passed out. With Chan asleep on his back seat, Lam drove back to his apartment to get some electrical cord. After not returning home that night, Chan's family reported her missing. A missing persons report wouldn't normally fall under homicide detective Martin Richmond's jurisdiction. When we had Homicide Bureau, Serious Crimes Division, Triad Society Bureau, and they were all subsequently amalgamated into the organised crime group, which I served in for nearly 14 years. Um, but in those the early days of Homicide Bureau, um, we, it was just homicides, uh, of which in those days, Hong Kong used to average out not many more than about 10 a year. 
but they were, it was a very interesting time, particularly f as uh, being a specialist unit, um, you did get to know a lot of the um, specialist personnel at police headquarters, chemists, fingerprint, that kind of thing. So your, your background and knowledge, and of course the product of what we were doing almost automatically went through the higher echelons of the Department of Justice and ended up trials in the High Court. And we did a number of cases, uh, Lamb being one of them. If you were purely on homicide, I'm, I'm assuming then you wouldn't be involved in missing person cases? No save that in Lamb's case, the first victim, who was located in the Singmung River up in uh, Sha Tin, on what is now part of the river reclamation for where the Maon San development is. From memory, a head and torso were found in the river and um, initially, of course, the, the way that the body had been found was suspicious. The arms had been removed, sawn off. It was obvious there'd been a homicide. And one of the uh, straightforward, the, the most straightforward scan that you can do with this type of case is to, is to scan through all the missing persons reports for women of, a particular, of that particular age. And if I remember, that was the uh, victim who was the lady who was the uh, worked in a nightclub in Chimsa Choi. She wasn't a working good lady, but she was like an accountant, or she was the accounts lady in the club. Uh, and she had a, she had a tattoo in, on her upper arm, the upper shoulder, which a partner was able to identify. She had been reported missing, yeah. 18 days later, on the 21st of February, 1982, the South China Morning Post reported. Torso of murdered hostess found. The torso of a Chimsa Choi club hostess, Chan Fong Lan, was found on Monday by a construction worker at a reclamation site near Ma Onshan. It had been stuffed in a bag. The woman's sawn-off legs and arms were found separately along the Shin Mun River in Sha Tin last week. The torso was later removed to the Kowloon Public Mortuary, where it is to be examined by a pathologist. Lam Kor Wan kept newspaper cuttings amongst his memorabilia. This was a shocking story for Hong Kong, which was generally regarded as a safe city. Martin Richmond, homicide detective, explains. Um, but in those the early days of Homicide Bureau, um, we, it was just um, homicides. Uh, of which in those days, Hong Kong used to average out not many more than about 10 a year. Yet, as with every major city, it had its problems. In Hong Kong, in the late 70s and early 80s, Kowloon's back streets and side lanes were infamous for illicit booksellers. The pornography was described as sickening and obscene, but easy to get hold of. And in the 1980s, the Royal Hong Kong Police was tasked with cleaning up the porn problem. The city-wide purge was led by Ian Seaborn. 
His name is Ian Seaboy. Uh, he was my superintendent. He was working in uh, Yamate, Timsa Choi, and Mong Kok at the time. He was responsible for taking off, taking away, I mean, taking away all the uh, prostitution in the area. And his nickname is the a superintendent to kill the prostitution. Uh, in other words, aka chicken. I mean, like chick, C H I C K, I think. And do you know why? Why they were doing that? Why they were trying to co- like collect all the magazines and um, videotapes and things like that? Oh, yes, that one. Uh, about the magazines and videotapes. We will seize it back into the police compound and let some police officers to look at it, actually, and then jot down all the transcripts. I mean, like talking, movements and things like that through that uh, video or magazine. And then it will be put to a court of law. And those days, I saw my officers, not me, of course, they don't need an inspector to do this, uh, has to sit in front of TV, watched all the videotapes and magazines they seized, and then make notes on them and submitted it to court. Can you remember any of the the, the, the titles or the names of the, the films? Oh, they were so... What do you call it? Antagonizing, if you hear it. If you, if you don't mind, mom, it's quite rude, actually. <clears throat> so okay. a man with a chicken, they've got intercourse. Okay, intercourse between a man and a chicken, or dog and horses, you know, things like that. And um, sometimes there will be very rough sex in it, you know, like sodomy, that sort of thing, with different postures. <laughs> My eyes are actually tearing after seeing this, you know, for a day, 24 hours. So, um, yeah, that was then. <laughs> and where did these videos and magazines come from? Like, uh, where were they made? I was told they were imported. Uh, some of them are being brought in by sailors, they said, quote. And also, uh, definitely not from China. Those days, China is not strong enough to do this. So they will be uh, shipped in, I mean, like, shipped in from illegally from all borders. From, uh, because Hong Kong, by then, is an island. You know, it's like everywhere you can get just get on board, got on board a, a boat and then sail it to Hong Kong. Some of them were being brought in by by people, tourists maybe. So they, they brought it in and then sell it to the dealers and things. Some of them are syndicated, I was told, because at least the shops selling them, they are all syndicated, triad related. You can go to the woman's street in, I mean, lady street to be honest. Uh, in um, in Mongkok area, which is called Sanyong Choi Street, or somewhere near Yaomate, you know, those little shops inside the little arcades, then you will find them. It's not too difficult for a local. That was Inspector Joseph Sanchez of the Royal Hong Kong Police. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The call from the people of Hong Kong to clean up the streets and get rid of this pornographic influence was not unjustified. Pornography has its biggest impact on the mind during adolescence. I spoke to Dr. John Fubert, Dean of the College of Education at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Dr. John Fubert cites the White House and Congress amongst his clientele and is a highly regarded academic in the field of studying the impact of pornography. Um, well, I've studied sexual assault prevention for about 30 years and um, have studied the influence of pornography on sexual assault for about 10 I did a study in 2011, um, and what we did was we surveyed uh, fraternity men on college campuses, and we wanted to know if there was a connection between pornography and sexual violence. Um, And we did find that the more the men used uh, pornography, the more likely they were to commit sexual violence. And that was one of the first studies that showed that particular effect, although before then people had, um, had presumed that that was probably the case. And can you tell me why you think that's the case? What's the negative impacts of pornography on an individual? Pornography essentially shows a type of sex that is not uh, the type of sex that is most often engaged between consenting individuals. It often shows uh, lack of consent. It shows violent uh, behavior between individuals. um, And it's done so to appeal to men's sexual fantasies of whether that's domination or or beating uh, women in some way or another. So it's not surprising then that men would seek to act it out at some point in time. Do you think it affects the way that men view women and the way that they relate to women in, in general? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, and there's there's a lot of research to support that. I mean, there's been a, a saying in the anti-porn movement for a long time that pornography objectifies women. Um, but there's actually now data to support that assertion. There was a study where um, they hooked men up to an MRI machine and neurologists read their brain waves. And what they found is that the part of the brain that, you know, lights up and fires when men are looking at pornography as the part of the brain that refers to objects and not people. 
And so uh, we have now neurological evidence showing that really when when men look at pornography, they're really thinking more of the the woman as an object, not as a person. I think usually the people that are passionate about pornography are are people who are making it um, or who are using it regularly and don't recognize the effects it's having on them. But I, I do know that there's a lot of research supporting the strong link between pornography and sexual violence. In fact, there are over 50 studies that draw a direct, a direct link between pornography and sexual violence. And you don't need to do many more studies to figure out that there's something going on here. In your study in 2011, what, what types of sexual violence were you seeing that were linked to pornography? Everything from sexual assault, which is a more broad category, to rape itself. Um, and, and what you find is that the men who are more likely to rape are also the more likely to watch um, violent pornography. And the more they watch it, the more that makes them more likely to rape. So it's almost a circular process. And when they feed themselves a steady diet of objectification of women and violence against women, that's going to have an effect on how you view women. And do you think that um, the more graphic the pornography, the more graphic the, the maybe the sexual violence might become? Uh, the more violent the pornography, certainly, um, the more risky it is uh, for men to act out and um, commit sexual violence, certainly. Yeah, I, it's difficult to know where his problem came from. Not a great deal that was made of it uh, at the trial, as I can remember, but he did have a, 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 a pretty peculiar collection of pornography. This is not sort of just Mayfair and that kind of thing. He, it, this is stuff that he was sending off for and was arriving in plain <laughs> plain brown paper wrappers, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was it was peculiar. And he had um, nearly all va vaginal uh, detail, and he was very interested in hermaphrodites, as I remember. So he got girls that were men, and men that were women, and various other things. I don't know. He he told his um, psychiatrist at the trial that he was interested in in the, you know the female body, and that part of the body. Why he had such an unhealthy interest in that, I don't know. Martin Richmond, homicide detective. Lam Corwan, in his teens, began to explore his sexuality. He was fascinated by pornography. Lam regularly purchased foreign pornographic magazines. He watched women, spying on his sister when she took showers. Without a girlfriend or even female friends, he began to hang out in female lavatories until he was charged with robbery, wounding and indecent assault after he attempted to reach out and touch a girl's vagina. His explanation? I suppose I was interested. He claimed it was an interest in female genitalia, a curiosity in the female form over a need for sexual arousement and gratification, and that interest was about to become a motive. Lam Korwan lived in his family apartment and shared a room with his younger brother. They slept in bunk beds, his brother on the top bunk and Lam on the lower bunk. Sharing such close quarters, they had devised ways to live together happily. They did not touch or borrow each other's belongings. 
There were agreements about such things, but they got on okay. He was quite nice to me, Lam's brother, Lam Kuo Kwan, said. Yet this was not a warm family nest for Lam. He worked nights in his taxi to keep away from the rest of the family. Lam lived in Kowloon, in an area called Tokowan, just over four kilometres from TST, where he picked up Chan Fung Lan. If he was looking for sex and believed that Chan Fung Lan was a cool girl from the Chinese Palace nightclub, he would have to have saved for a very long time to be able to afford her on his $80 a day taxi income. So it was more expensive for a girl from the Chinese Palace nightclub? Yes, yes, much more expensive. Uh, Why? When, when they're trying to get, because there are levels, I mean, like a, a very good hierarchy, if you call that, very good. There were a hierarchy of this kind of um, um, illegal things or illegal things, as you say. So the lowest one will be the Keikai, the standing streets. So you can actually call a prostitute when you were like, like the one in the 60s and 70s in Soho area, that you can just see them and then you just call them out and then you give them like tens of dollars out and then you can finish your transaction in the, in the alleyway and things like that. So that will be, um, that will be the lowest strata. The second lowest, I mean, come second, better ones, they have shelters. They are called one girl brothel or one woman brothel. And then the one up, further up, it could be several girls working together in a flat so that they don't have to pay for only one room. They share the cost. And then there will be a mamazan, man or woman, to operate them. And there will be triad members stationing, one of them, only one, <clears throat> stationing inside the premises to protect them, sort of like. And this belongs to a triad operation, syndicated, we call them. For the K-guy, for the, for the, for the uh, uh, standing street prostitute, and for those one-girl brothel, they are not usually, not usually operated by tribe, but definitely controlled by them because they will go there, they will, <clears throat> they would go there and then collect money from them, like a protection fee. And then, yeah, and then the, after that, uh, you know, a few girls operating brothels up, it's a uh, <clears throat> uh, girl. They will call up to your home, to your but if they believe you, if they trust you, or to a hotel or a small hostel, they will run girls around. And usually there will be a, how do you call that? Um, a man holding a horse in a horse race. He's not the owner, of course. Right. Uh, um, uh, like, a, uh, like a stable. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, stable man. They are called stable man, nicknamed. In Chinese, it's called Ma Fu. Ma is a horse. Fu is the one who's holding on to a horse. So he operates them. So he's the one, he will be the one to liaise with you first. You call up a number, which will be usually given by the hostel owner. You go to you, you go to a hostel and then you contact the staff of the hostel and then you say you want a woman. Of course they don't they know which hostel to go. This um, this customer, the stable man will come up, the Mafu will come up and ask you what kind of girl you really like. Then he will bring up one for you inside to your room. That's the higher bit. Usually it will cost you a few hundred dollars those days. In Hong Kong, if you were looking for sexual companionship, there were many options. But Lam had another plan. An extract from Hong Kong Noir by Feng Chi Xuan, published by Blacksmith Books. 
when he drove home to Tokwa Wan and parked his taxi in its usual spot, it was almost five o'clock in the morning. He went over to take a look at the entrance and foyer of his building, and as expected, there was no people traffic, and the security guard was sleeping soundly in his makeshift bed in a dark corner. He carried the body of the young woman over his shoulder, and went into the elevator without making a sound. He entered his flat quietly, and hid the body underneath the sofa in the living room. Weeks before, he had hidden himself in the same spot, and he knew for sure there was enough room for a body, and the body would be well concealed. He took five hundred dollars from her handbag. And went out to buy an electric saw. He had managed to get the body into his home unseen, but would need to take it out again. He couldn't leave it under the sofa forever. During the day, whilst his family were at work, he set up his camera and began to dismember the body, taking photographs as he went. His interest in the female genitalia increased, seeing it close up. He tried to cut out Chan's vagina, placing it in a Tupperware box. Filled with rice wine to preserve it, he cut up the rest of the body into seven pieces. That night, he drove his taxi to the Xingmen River in Shatin in the New Territories, and disposed of the body parts before switching on his light, ready to pick up his next passenger. Next time on Catching Worms. The second victim, she had been drunk and sort of fallen out of her club and gone looking for a taxi, and he gone and found her. It's a very chemical smell, like almost like the strongest bleach you've ever smelt. It's and it sort of sort of lingers on you. This room,、um, with him, with his back to the camera, all lit up, and then you realise that you you know he's got a body in front of him. Female body. So if he'd started cutting them up you know, immediately after they died, that would be very, very bloody. This has been a Create podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave a review and a five-star rating. It helps others to find us. With special thanks to Simon Ung, Detective Martin Richmond, Inspector Joe Sanchez, Michelle, Hong Kong Noir by Feng Chishuan, published by Blacksmith Books, Jade Bourne, and Doctor John Fubert. Thank you for listening. Catching worms, jok chong. This term means to get yourself into trouble, causing unnecessary difficulties. It may seem like an odd phrase, but this slang is often used as an abbreviation of the full saying jok chong yap si fat, that involves putting said worms up your rear end.
which, to anyone's imagination, definitely spells trouble indeed. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 